drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. So there's, there's five reasons for coming. Drugs, guns, gangs, economic instability, and government corruption. Well, both President Donald Trump and my guest today appear to agree on one thing. Crime and drugs have something to do with immigration. My guest today is Reverend Dr. Helen Bourgier. She's an ordained Presbyterian minister and a professor at College of St. Scholastica. Pastor Bourgier has also been a volunteer chaplain with refugee families seeking asylum since 2014. The current immigration debate is one of the more divisive issues of our time. Now, as people of faith, we may see different solutions to this issue, and that's fine, as long as those solutions are humane and just. Some, like my guest today, believe that we ought to freely welcome the stranger into our own land. Others may feel that our resources are just too small to provide for both us and them, and that these refugees need to stay at home. However, as you'll hear today, that's just not an option for many of those seeking asylum here in America. To remain in their home country would be equivalent to a death sentence for them or their children. My guest today also makes the case that we Americans may be more responsible than we realize for the conditions in the countries from which these refugees are fleeing. Today's conversation mainly focuses on those refugees who are seeking asylum at our southern border. We wrap up our conversation with some practical ways we can do justice for refugees in America. And by the way, want to do us a favor? Make sure to subscribe and rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. So to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. I am a volunteer chaplain with Refugee Families Seeking Asylum. I have been volunteering in different capacities since uh, the end of 2014 from the context of I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, and I was a volunteer chaplain for two years in a for-profit prison facility located 70 miles from my home, I where I went and did basically art therapy with the families. I was there for pastoral care, and I've also hosted families in my home. I've uh, visited detained families, and I currently volunteer at the uh, city of San Antonio, their uh, resource center, which basically is a respite center for the families who are come in and uh, they're dropped off from Im- immigration customs enforcement. And before they can connect with their family and transportation, they're just kind of hanging out in San Antonio. So I have the privilege of working with the families there. I mm. also, um, I have a PhD in practical theology mm-hmm. and I do research and writing, and it won't surprise you to know that I do it on immigration and refugee families seeking asylum. So I have a new book that came out in uh, February of 2019 mm-hmm. called The Ethics of Hospitality and Interfaith Response to U.S. Immigration Policies, and a forthcoming book that is uh, will be out in December of 2019 that's called Desperately Seeking Asylum, Testimonies of Trauma, Courage and love, and both of these books uh, prioritize and share the stories of the families, so that they have an opportunity for their witness to go forth. And then it also shares why people volunteer and the meaning and that they gain from it, and how interacting with the families has really been transformative. And that's why they continue to assist the families. Mm, wow. Well, so you've seen with your own eyes uh, what these folks are going through. You've talked to them. You've listened to their stories. Uh, tell us what you've heard from those who are coming here, 
to to our borders seeking uh, refuge, seeking asylum? Well, first of all, when I began all this, I had absolutely no idea. I was uh, mm-hmm. working as a, a minister in my congregation and was getting involved in mission outreach and justice concerns for the Presbyterian Church. And I just went to volunteer to see how I could help and to do art with the children, which became art therapy with the mothers as well. But I had absolutely no idea. And when I was hearing their stories and weeping and praying with them and just the horror that they had been through, I started doing my own academic research so that I could understand more. And it stunned me that the mothers I initially worked with, they're young. They're young mothers, ages 19 to 22. Someone who's in their 30s or 40s, I mean, that's old. Mm -hmm. These are young women with young children, um, a a newborn, a a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and they are literally fleeing for their lives. They, I haven't ever spoken with a mother who does not have some form of uh, death threat hanging over her. Um, and that's why she fled. And you, know, you, you have to imagine what would it take anybody to leave everything behind mm. literally and just go. Um, some of the mothers, um, I had one mother was, who was uh, part of family separation. I asked her, I said, how did you, like, why did you cross when you knew that um, the Trump administration had just started this family separation thing? How, didn't you know? Because we mm-hmm. think everyone knows everything that's going on in the United States, and that's just not so. Mm-hmm. And she said, the problem I had was too great. I woke up one morning and I had to leave. And her, then she, when she got to the Mexico-U.S. border, she called her brother in the United States who will receive her. And that's when she found out if you cross that, that your son will be taken from you. And that is, in fact, what happened. But mm. she said, again, the problem was too great. I mm. had to leave. And she had a, a, a death threat hanging over her. Well, and, and that brings me to, to the question, well, why are they coming here? And, and so in this particular case, it was some sort of a death threat. Um, why are, I mean, so many of these folks willing to risk even separation from their children or whatever might happen to them here? Uh, what's so bad in their home country that they're coming here? Well, first of all, the majority of the uh, families are coming from Guatemala, Mm -hmm. El Salvador, and Honduras. There also are some from Nicaragua, Chile, Haiti, and then recently the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. But the vast majority are coming from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, which has the highest, consistently the highest murder rate in the world Mm -hmm. is between those three countries. So there's, there's five reasons they're coming. Drugs. Guns, gangs, economic instability, and government corruption. Mm. So, mm-hmm. drugs. That if you think about that, get your mental on your geography. You have the number one producer of cocaine, Colombia, on the other side of these three countries, and then you have the number one importer of cocaine, the United States. Oh wow! And then you have the cartel that moves the product. So. The drug activity creates a lot of violence. Well, guess what? The United States being the number one importer, it's documented that we, and I say we because I am a part of this country, we pay for those drugs with stolen arms, Mm. which arm the gangs, which prey upon the families, which make it uh, um, the death threats and the extortion and all of that. And then you add economic instability and we'll say, oh, well, they're just poor countries. Well, the United States and our international policies has made it 
worse. Mm. There's something called NAFTA, the North American Fair Trade Agreement. So our big businesses have marched in there and hurt the economy that, that was stable and was fine. So we're benefiting from the lower prices and all of that, but people there are struggling to earn a living. So we are contributing to these problems that are forcing the families to flee. And I, let me just share with you, if I may, a, a couple of stories these are direct quotes that I've written down and documented of mm-hmm. the uh, mothers that have spoken with me. Sure. So in my country, El Salvador, insecurity and violence grow bigger every day. A wave of violence is unleashed over as little as 50 cents. There is fear mm-hmm. to leave for work in the morning and more fear to leave to come home for work in the evening. The gangs extort the gangs assault, the gangs rob, the gangs kill, unemployment, violence, killings. The gangs molest our civic tranquility. Amid the violence and death, we are on the list to be killed. There is no possibility for a peaceful sleep. When we leave for work in the morning, only God knows if we will return in the evening. Violence and death are everywhere. Wow. Another mother, if I may, shared her reasons for leaving. I left Honduras running in fear from my husband. I suffered much domestic violence. My children suffered too, many times. The gangs molested my daughter, many times. They did evil things to her. We have suffered enough. I am very sad when I remember all the suffering my husband caused. He beat me, he mistreated me, He tried to kill me. I ask my God, please help me to forget all the bad, all the evil. Hmm. And then this kind of brings us to a point of why they come. Mm -hmm. Another mother writes, I am a mother. My duty is to protect my daughter. I'm a Catholic. I have faith in God. I have faith in this country, the United States. I trust this place the United States. There are laws here to protect everyone. Here, we have hope for a future. Mm -hmm. I want my daughter to have a dignified life. In the United States, there is protection for the good heart. Here, the leaders fight for the people. And one mother simply said, I want to see my daughter smile. They're not here for the yellow brick road to happily ever after and the fancy life that is sometimes painted in the media. They are here for what's called bare life, existence, existence. They want to live. And so they come. Mm. And, and why do they believe America is going to give them something better than they have? I mean, how have they heard? What have they heard about? here that makes them say, that's the place I want to risk, risk my, my life to get to. Everything about the public image that the United States puts forth mm-hmm. from the Statue of Liberty standing in, in the New York City Harbor, uh, bring me your free, your, your poor, your infirm, we're all are welcome here. I mean, that whole image is what's been put forth, that, this, that we are a nation of immigrants. Mm-hmm. That, and it's also the whole concept of democracy, that again, what this woman just said, here the leaders fight for the people. They believe that ultimately the in the democratic way that 
that because they're coming from a, a country where there is so much corruption, where it it's, uh, risks, risks their lives literally to go to the police to make to file a police report against mm. something that's happened. So, for example, one woman said to me that her house had been robbed and the neighbor next door, when she filed a, a report, when her house was robbed, they strangled her. And so she's like, well, I guess that's not going to be a good plan for me. Go and, and tell the police and get strangled. So she said, I knew that I just had to put up with my house being robbed again and again and again, or I had to leave. So she felt like she had no choice but to leave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm listening to these stories and I'm thinking, okay, someone's life there is this bad. They say, I'm going to risk the journey, which Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the journey from El Salvador or Guatemala to the border of the United States is like, because I've heard it's pretty bad. And I'm thinking, yeah, I I believe if someone was is willing to take that risk and come here, even knowing that perhaps their children will be, child will be separated from them, et cetera, et cetera, um, their their story is is likely true. But but there are people out there that say, hey, these people are lying. They're not really uh, in such a bad place back home in their home country. Things aren't really that bad. Um, How do you know? How do we know that their stories are true? Well, there's two ways. For me, first of all, I'm in the capacity with the families as a volunteer chaplain. They have no reason to lie to me. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do them any benefit. I can't get them out of jail free. I can't. There's nothing I can do that's going to rescue them or help them in any way. I'm there simply to be moral support, spiritual support, to hug them, to encourage them, to remind them that God loves them and that they are cherished children of God. So there's nothing in it for them to pour out their story and lie through their teeth because I can't fix any of that for them. So what is uh, happening is they pour their hearts forth. They're sharing their stories that are true. This is the suffering that they know. And second, and this is most important probably for people who haven't had the opportunity to have such a long and up close uh, first person experience as I have, the stories that the families give match everything we know that's documented about the region that they are fleeing from. Mm -hmm. So Latin America is 8% of the global population, but it accounts for 38% of the murders for the entire world. Mm -hmm. Fear of death, it's a given. And Honduras consistently has the highest homicide rate in the world. It's this little itty bitty country. Mm El Salvador and Guatemala are close behind. So for perspective, because this is where the vast majority are coming from, for the size, geography, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, when you put those three together, they would fit within the size of the state of Oregon. Mm. They're Mm -hmm. small. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems is there's no place to run. There's no place to run in their own little bitty country because of the long um, arms of the gangs. They can't cross from one territory to another or go to another. And so the reason they come to the United States is because they see us as a sister nation. Time and again, you will hear the families refer to us as their sister nation. And they say this because they have family already living here, not like twice removed second cousin, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children. They have a direct relative in the direct bloodline already living here that has said, hey, you can live with me. I will be your sponsor. Just get here. And so they're not 
like some of the, the um, news talk will be like, oh, they're staying in Mexico. Oh, we don't come here. Oh, stay in Mexico. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't have family in Mexico. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. families are coming here because they have family here and mm-hmm. someone will help them. And just imagine for yourself, if you have a granddaughter or you have a niece or a nephew and you know that their life is at great risk and you just say, honey, if you just get here, Aunt Helen, I will take care of you. That's why they come here. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, let's say they they decide they're going to come to America. What's the journey like on the way? Well, it's ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are really fortunate and have a family member in the United States with um, plenty of money, they'll take a bus through Mexico. That is not... Uh, common. It's much more common that they make the overland journey um, on foot. I've heard um, horror stories of the families who've been locked in the back of a semi truck for 30 hours, for 20 hours, mm. with no water, no air. As one mother said, the air was so uh, difficult to breathe that I thought I would die. And there was no water left to give my daughter. By the time they brought us water only two times, and there was none left to give my daughter. Um, the Overland journey, they travel only at night so that the um, the bad men won't get us. That will be a quote. So the bad men won't get us. And as one woman said, we behaved like animals traveling only at, at night and um, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And many of the families make have to make a decision of which children to leave at home and which child to bring with them. And it often has to do with the one that they are most physically able to bring with them because the, the child is the right age. They can do some of the walking themselves or it's a, the child that is the most at risk. I spoke with a mother a few weeks ago at the San Antonio Resource Center, and she was older for a, a refugee mother. Uh, and she was here with her youngest son, who's 15. And she a, a common um, issue in uh, this region is extortion. And they start off with small amounts, and then it goes bigger and bigger and bigger. And the extortion is so we won't rape, molest your daughter. That would mm. be for a girl. Wow. For the boys, wow. it's so that we will not impress him into the gang. And once a, a boy is snatched and put into the gang, you, have, you never see your child is as if that child is dead you will never see him again and then of course they're forced to do all the gang things so she was trying to keep her son alive and keep him out of the gang and was paying this extortion money and it started off small and bigger and bigger and then one day she was walking out of the bank and they forced her back into the bank and and forced her to empty her bank account and she told me the amount i don't recall it at the time but she had to literally empty out her entire life savings at that moment um, to keep her 15-year-old from being snatched into the gang. Well, now she has no more money. She has no more savings. She has nothing else that she can do that she can possibly keep him out of that gang. And so the next morning, they came to America. And and so, all right, and I've, I've read the stories about, you know, along the way, just how terrible it is. Um, uh, women are raped. Um, people are murdered. Uh, did they know how bad the journey was? Have any of these folks told you that they knew it was going to be as bad as it was before they started that journey? I asked this question uh, regularly with the families, mm-hmm. and um, most of them knew it would be bad. They knew that, it, that I mean, obviously, they, they knew that there was going to be suffering. It, it depends on their journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the mothers who, who uh, talked about how, um, well, she just said that it's better to 
stay to die at home with your own family than for your body to be eaten by wild animals. Mm. No, no, no. It was a very bad trip. That's that's how she ended her uh, writing her story and her her experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who don't have as much, you know, who arrive alive, um, their comments are going to be, you know, I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know it was going to be that bad. But then in the big picture of life, we're here, we're alive, we're safe, and we don't, we're not going to be killed tomorrow. Um, The worst part is, it's how we receive them, which is increasingly becoming the worst part of the journey. And if I may, I'd like to share with you a story um, of a, a mother that she ex- experienced, you know, that she, th- this is what it was like for her when she arrived in this country. And, but first let me just share that there are two uh, terms that the families use for the Customs Border Patrol facilities where we detain the families when they first, when they first arrived. One is called the Ilera, which is Spanish and it means the icebox, icebox or cooler. Oh, wow. And the second one is called the Pereira, which is dog kennel or cage. So the Ilera would is like the holding cell. When they first picked up, they're, they're brought to these holding cells, and they're all along the southern border. Um, they the families call them the Ilera, the icebox or cooler, because the temperature is set is set so incredibly cold that they are huddled on the floor, freezing, literally just freezing, trying to body warmth will not keep the children warm. So they always refer to this as the Ilera. And then the second facility is what you've seen on television. These cages and the cage uh, there's one in McAllen Texas and that was uh, built by the Obama administration and is continued to be put into use throughout the Trump administration mm-hmm. so the, the families first go to the Aleta and generally it was from anywhere from three days to seven or eight days in this icebox and then often they're brought to the Pereira the dog kennel and then from there if they've passed their initial screening then they would either be released into the care of family or sent to the for-profit family detention centers so that's at the border what's been typically the process so let me explain this um, share this story from a mother who shared this with me mm-hmm. we arrived at the Aleta the refrigerator on September 3rd, my birthday. It was the worst day of my life. Shut up, confined, shaking and cold, sleeping on the floor, hungry. My son asked to leave there. It was so very cold. My son said, it would have been better if we had never left grandmother's house. All I could do was hug my pretty son and tell him, I love you. Other mothers have shared, and fathers, that the worst part of the journey was being detained at the U.S. uh, Border Patrol facilities because of the harsh treatment in that Ilera, that cooler, Mm -hmm. that they expected all of the other things, but this was something that they did not expect at all. They were not prepared for it, and it was just too horrible. Um, Here's one of a father. It was very sad. We suffered so much. The Alera was horrible, so very cold, no blankets. We didn't bathe. We didn't even brush our teeth. It's a horrible place, horrible. Everyone was crowded, small, cramped, tight, very cold. It's a horrible place. We suffered much in the Alera. 
And that was a father with a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Here's another father who shared, shared his story, and he was traveling with his six-year-old daughter. Again, a, fam- a familiar phrase. The Aleta was horrible, cold. We ate frozen sandwiches. We drank aqua pura five days. We did not bathe, cold, sleeping on the floor, crowded, cramped. It was very, very cold. My daughter cried and cried. There was nothing I could do. I am her father. I was helpless to protect her. She suffered in the Aleta. The Aleta is a horrible place. So they get here, and technically, under our asylum laws, um, and I'm not an immigration attorney, I am an attorney, but I don't practice in that area. My understanding is that if you present yourself at a border of the United States and say I'm seeking asylum, that our laws... um, you know, are, are set up to allow you to come in and to uh, argue your case that you should be um, allowed to stay here as a refugee. Um, they come and we we put them in these holding cells and cages, and we they're they're freezing cold. The treatment is uh, sometimes worse than we treat animals. Right? Uh, why are we doing this? Why do you think that the uh, current administration, and I don't even know if the previous one did this, but there's been some reports that maybe they were doing this as well. Why are they treating these folks this way? Well, we're blatantly disregarding the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, which is what was uh, following World War II. They came up with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in 1951, they came up with the United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees, which was updated with what's called the Protocol Relating to the Status of Refugees in 1967, and that's just called the Protocol. So you have mm-hmm. this United Nations uh, body of legal uh, recommendations and laws, if you will, bold type. I'm a pastor, not an attorney, but the bold type. And the United States is a signatory nation, which means that in theory, we say yes. Everyone has a right to flee when their lives are at great risk. The protocol specifies that no one seeking asylum should be punished. Well, if you're locked up in a cooler and in a dog cage, I'd call that punishment. And the second principle that is the core aspect of this and the the protocol, the legal uh, laws are non-refoulement. Non-refoulement says that an asylum seeker shall not be returned to their home country if their lives will be at great risk. Mm -hmm. And those are the two main points of this international body of law. And then with children, we've added the Flores um, Agreement, which has been in place since 1997, and that adds even more boundaries and parameters so that unaccompanied minors and also children traveling with their parents, they're also protected under it, they are not held, detained, in, and there's like basic ground-level uh, stipulations for basic care, not staying at the Holiday Inn, the Hyatt, uh, your Ramada Inn, just basic, um, like, <laughs> clean, basic things. And we're also not doing that with children. So I, I don't know. Is that a rhetorical question? Why aren't we doing it? Uh, for me, the, it's not just a, an issue of the current administration. It's, it's an, an issue of the— 
American people and of every single elected official that we are allowing this to be happening uh, um, across our southern border. This is unacceptable. It's uh, against international law. It's against U.S. laws that we have made. Mm -hmm. And then it's also clearly a, a gross violation of um, basic humanitarian uh, rights for, for human beings, person to person. So uh, rhetorically, I've, I don't have an answer for why we're violating it, mm -hmm. um, but clearly we are. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think, you know, it, a lot of folks assume it's per, to deter people, right? They say, well, if we can make it hard enough when they get here, maybe they'll tell their friends and they won't come, I guess. Or if we send them back, they'll stay Stay home next time or something like that. I don't know. But um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who don't believe these stories. Again, they say these people are, are lying. They're just coming here because they want to come and uh, infringe upon our way of life, as some would say. Um, we don't have enough resources for uh, all these refugees. You know, there's there's enough poor people in the United States as it is. Um, and so why do they think they can come here why don't they go back to their country and, and try to make it better there? What is your answer to that? Well, first of all, it's not a clean and neat, simple thing. And that's a very simplistic way to look at it. Just go back and solve your own problems when we are part of the problem. And it's really important to acknowledge and name the fact that we are the number one importer of drugs. We sell, we uh, pay for them with uh, guns that arm the gangs, that prey upon the families. And we've also historically supported the bad boy regimes that ha have been the ones that have oppressed the people who are who now a generation later are coming here. So we are part of the problem. And to take ourselves aside from that and say, oh, well, let's just go on back. Uh, we That is a, a disconnect. And okay, so then if you want to talk cost, um, the United States of America expends, and this is not my area of expertise, I just, um, so I'll just bold type. We spend a ton of money. We spend a ton of money on for-profit prisons. It's one of the highest lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C. We got more prisons and more coming for immigration. And now we justify locking up mothers and children, mm. mothers and children who are seeking asylum. So one of the things that's a, a real important aspect of humanitarian ethics, not we're not even going to go to the uh, a religious thing here, but a humanitarian is that the asylum laws are not to protect us, the receiving nation. Mm -hmm. The asylum laws are to, to protect the ones seeking asylum. It isn't about what's best for us. It is what's best for the ones who are fleeing for their lives. So we need to step out of our um, selfishness mm -hmm. and out of our, my, our mindset of never enough and remember that the humanitarian aspect is that we do say, bienvenidos, welcome, and step outside of that fear of loss, fear of not enough, and again, or perhaps maybe take down the Statue of Liberty from the New York City Harbor and move from our rhetoric of uh, give me your uh, all of the uh, immigrants are welcome and move to something that says that, no, we're not welcome. But I want to share with you, because uh, this bears on what you just said here. Mm -hmm. There's a phenomenal immigration um, ethicist named Joseph H. Cairns. And he wrote a book called The Ethics of Immigration, and he gives three reasons for moral responsibility for why a nation needs to uh, receive refugees um, seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. The first is causal. So causal means to cause. So we cause part of the problem. So therefore, we have a moral responsibility to receive the families who are 
suffering because we are of that causal connection. The second one is humanitarian. They're human beings. They're part of the same species. We are, um, and for a religious person, you can go to the step they all created in the image of God, Imago Dei, Genesis 127. And then the third is the modern state system, which kind of took me for, I was a little surprised by that one. But what he's saying is that way back, we all, the countries kind of gradually uh, started agreeing that this is my country, that's your country, you're in charge of your country, uh, we're in charge of our country, right? So we're, we're all a part of this nice and neat modern state system, which is great when it works. But what happens when it doesn't work? And so what Karen says is that because we all play in, in, you know, part of the same game, that we need to be responsible for when it doesn't work for someone else. And someone recently said to me when I was at a a public event and there's a lot of Q&A going back and forth and, you know, why let them in and all that. And one person said, well, thanks be to God that they want to come here. The bigger concern, the bigger worry is when no one wants to come to the United States of America anymore. Mm. That's when we have a problem. Hmm. Some people want it to be that way. And that is a scary thought. I I think that is, that's very scary to think uh, what our country will be like when no one actually wants to come here. Uh, So you and I are both Christians. Um, what are some biblical reasons for those who might care about what the Bible has to say about this issue? And obviously, the Bible was written a long time ago, and it doesn't have anything specific to say about this particular situation. But there are some principles there. Um, and I think we can extrapolate from those principles some things that would guide us today. Would you just give us some some thoughts on the the biblical and, and a little bit more on the ethical reasons why uh, we should be open to accepting people who are seeking asylum. People are saying, hey, I need help. Please help me. When I wrote this first book, uh, The Ethics of Hospitality, I had a conversation with the editor, and I'm a theologian. I have a PhD in practical theology. I I teach theology and religious studies. So here I'm writing this book, and I knew that there had to be a chapter in there on theology, right? So I'm thinking, what would be the the point that that would be worth reading, and I needed to add it and to kind of explain where this fits? And I chose love. And I I said to the editor, I mean, it seems so ridiculous that you would even have to waste space in a book on explaining that God is love and that the expression of love of God is welcome of the neighbor. That's all the way through scripture, all the way. We hear this all the time in church. Um, it is it's it's not rocket science here. It's the basic core element of what it means to be a professing Christian. And so then I spread it out a little bit and I started looking. And what's interesting is that in the Abrahamic tradition, um, and so the Abrahamic tradition would be Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And it's called the Abrahamic tradition because we all share the same uh, founder of faith, Father Abraham. Mm -hmm. And all three of these uh, religions all affirm the core theology that love of God means love of neighbor. So if you love God, then you also must love your neighbor. And in in, um, the Hebrew Bible, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus. And then, of course, the, uh, the greatest commandment, which is in the gospel for Christians. And what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, mind, and soul. And the second one is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Quran, in Islam, it says, and know that among you is the messenger of Allah. 
which means that anybody who comes into, into contact with you could be a messenger of Allah, and therefore you are extending hospitality to, in the same way that the Christian Bible would talk about in Matthew 25, that whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. And so that that being nice and love and compassion is what the, the scriptures are about. And one of my... Um, Hebrew Bible professors once said to me, the reason that God would send the prophets to scream at the Israelites in what Christians call the Old Testament is because they weren't doing something. Mm -hmm. And if ever there was a, a, a need to scream, it was about love your neighbor as yourself, welcome your neighbor, remember that you were a stranger in Egypt in a strange land and you were cared for. Now you need to care for the strangers among you. So it's prevalent all the way through um, Scripture. Um, Jim Wallace, who's the founder of the Sojourners, um, mm -hmm. he has written on this a lot. And, you know, it, there's no way that you can make a theological argument against hospitality and welcoming refugee families seeking asylum. It's impossible. And so recently I was getting caught up on um, – I follow all this, you know, all the news media, and I keep a big old long-winded bibliography to refer back to later. And I was doing kind of uh, computer maintenance, and you're like, all right, I gotta, I gotta, gotta do housekeeping and sort all this stuff. And so I, it took me two days to get caught up on all of logging in all of these uh, articles in the media uh, about things related to the southern border. And so I just just chose a few of them here, and I thought. You know, how could you stand up in any uh, mosque or temple or church and read this list of, of uh, newspaper headlines, right, mm -hmm. and and justify it and say, yeah, God would like this. Oh, yeah, go Allah. Yeah, oh, go Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's no way. There's no way. So if I may, I just have a few. Can I sure. read? Uh, okay. Yeah. So they most of them are very, very recent. Um, a few I put for context um, started last spring. These are all, imagine them being in direct quotes. Family separation has scarred these kids for life. Attorneys, Texas border facility is neglecting migrant kids. Quote, torture facilities. Eyewitnesses describe poor conditions at Texas detention centers for migrant children. Asylum seekers are being disappeared in private Louisiana jails. Trump administration to detain migrant children on the site of the World War II Japanese-American internment camp. An expert on concentration camps says that's exactly what the U.S. is running at the border. Sexual assault for detained migrant children reported in the thousands since 2015. Mm. Trump administration cancels English classes, soccer, legal aid for unaccompanied child migrants in U.S. shelters. Just a few more. Immigrant women stuck in detention. The T. Don Hutto detainees can't get their day in court. ICE moves to silence detention center volunteer visitors. I was silenced. The government is detaining and interrogating journalists and advocates at the U.S.-Mexico border. Homeland Security used a private intelligence firm to monitor family separation protests. Final one. Art installations blast audio of sobbing, detained children across New York City. Mm. Wow. So this love your neighbor thing that is all throughout Scripture, it's common throughout the Abrahamic uh, traditions. 
it seems like we have a real problem with that. We've had a real problem with that throughout history. And even people who claim to love God, um, like I do, like you do, um, we tend to have a real problem with that. We can say, I'm worshiping God, and at the same time, treat our neighbor terribly. Um, I, I read something on Twitter the other day, I think you'll appreciate this, um, uh, by somebody named Caleb Izell, and he said, it was Cain, the first murderer, who asked, am I my brother's keeper? It was the lawyer wanting to disprove Jesus who, trying to justify himself, who asked, and who is my neighbor? And he said, we quote the Bible often, but I wonder if we're aligning ourselves with the right characters. I mean, we're seeing those, those same questions, it seems like, today in maybe slightly different language. Am I my brother's keeper? Who is my neighbor? Who do I really need to care about? Who do I need to really love? Uh, we're still struggling with the answer to those questions, aren't we? Yes, we are. There's a social scientist writer named Brene Brown. She's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And she writes a lot on shame. Um, But one of her big themes that she talks about is the never enough mentality and that we spend our lives, we get up in the morning, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, I didn't have time to get to the gym today. Oh, I I don't have time to get my reading done. Oh, everything is, we're so focused on never enough. Well, that overflows into into our language at the border. There's not enough for my family. And it's, it's not long-time Americans necessarily. It could be a second-generation immigrant who would feel the same way. Well, I got here first, and so I need to make sure that my family has a job. One of the things that we miss when we live into that never-enough um, mentality is we miss the gift. We miss that gift that comes when we do welcome the strange other. And I, I need to share with you, these families are wonderful. These families have heart and hope and love. They have so much faith in God. They read the same Bible we do. They believe in the same God that is the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. They believe in Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a hope and a future for them. And I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm an ordained minister. I was organizing pastor of a new church. I teach theology and religious studies, and I have been humbled to my knees at the face of these families. And so what I say to them all the time is you bring this amazing gift. You believe in God. You are a witness to the goodness of God and the hope in God. And that might be too wispy for some people, but it's a huge gift they bring. And tangibly, the young are fleeing. The strong are fleeing. The ones who want to work are fleeing. There are the labor force to do that which many of our um, children wouldn't necessarily want to take these jobs. But these mothers are willing to do this. The fathers are willing. They want to work. And so they're coming with faith in God, with hope, with commitment to their families to do whatever it takes to make the sacrifice so their daughter can live, so their son can live. That's why they're coming. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift that this nation, if we would just recognize it and receive it and say, wow, this is awesome. I want you to work where I work. I want that kind of passion and love and zeal working with me alongside me, whatever my job is, because it will be a better workplace when these uh, families coming here are welcomed and allowed to work alongside longtime Americans. So you Tell us about your interactions with these folks. And, and from everything I've heard from you, these folks are, are people who are good people. They're, uh, you just mentioned many of them are Christians. They're believers in, in uh, the same God that, that we worship. Um, 
And yet we hear so many people out there, mainly politicians, including our current president, who, th- who say that these folks are you know, the worst of the worst. And they're coming here uh, to uh, start gangs here and to rape and murder and, and pillage us. Um, what, are your, what, are your, what, are your, what is your knowledge about the statistics that we have about who these people are? Um, is it true that the majority of these folks are bad people? And why or why not? Well, I would imagine that there are some bad um, apples in that in a bushel that comes through. I would imagine that's probably the case. But sure. I, I doubt if they come in the front door, and I doubt if they come asking for asylum. Um, the United States has a very uh, arduous vetting process. They don't just open the door and say, oh, y'all come in now, you hear? No. There's a very long, detailed process with accountability. And so in that process, in that accountability, that's where they're, you're going to find the bad apples, if you will. But to arbitrarily randomly say and to lead with the fact that they're all murderers, drugs, and blah, 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 and oh, maybe some of them are good people. We need to lead with the fact that Mm -hmm. most of them are good people. Most of them are, in fact, desperately seeking asylum and willing to do whatever sacrifice they need. And we need to look at the integrity and the character of the individuals and not do this whole big lump thing that, oh, they're all bad people. They're fleeing the bad guys. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. They're fleeing for their lives. And so you do mention that there is this very uh, stringent vetting process that happens if you do come here seeking asylum. Um, do we have any statistics on how many people are currently uh, being held uh, in those containments, you know, these these cages and, and so on and so forth that, that have come here seeking asylum? Do we know how many approximately are here asking for asylum? It's an easily findable number that all you have to do is go on the Immigration Customs Enforcement website, and they're okay. required to have full disclosure and to put all the, the stats and statistics. When I was researching for my first book, I spent 30 days, 30 days, and all I did was go through Immigration Customs Enforcement and their data and details and mm-hmm. how they um, categorize. And so you can find that information. Any Anyone who wants it is public information. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you can find is the number and the increase of the for-profit detention centers. You can also find, uh, for, for immigrants, you can also find the um, number of the Operation Streamline, which we haven't talked about, which was an invention that the United States came up with to make it uh, – the, the quote, put that in quotes, legal process for mass injustice and mass deportations at the southern border. So you can find out how much all of these things cost. And then when you, you how many people are involved in how many are the biggest cost to the American taxpayer is the for profit detention facilities. Follow that second by the Operation Streamline and the mass deportation Um it's staggering. It's staggering the amount of money that we spend to detain women and children. I don't I know the number off the top of my head, but it's something like $250 for uh, the uh, family detention beds per person per night. The mm. se- 70 miles from my home, there uh, is uh, Carn City, which is a geo for-profit prison. It started off, it was for 500 um, people, and then they doubled it and went to 1,000. In that time frame, that's when I was a volunteer chaplain. Uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement rescinded my security clearance and kicked me out on December 15th, 2016. There's a second for-profit family detention center on the other side of San Antonio, a 
70 miles kind of the other direction, and that's called Dilly, and that holds 2,400 mothers and children. Mm-hmm. And then there's a small one, which is kind of the original one that's that's in uh, Berks in Pennsylvania, and that's the small one that's been ongoing that was like the original one. But these, you know, an hour from San Antonio, we have the capacity to lock up 3,000 women and children mm-hmm. seeking asylum. How much does this cost? And it's you think, well, the government's paying for it. Well, the government's paying for it out of our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. So we need to be looking at the costs and really, really, what are we spending our money on here? It's kind of crazy when they have a family member who will host them for free. So what are some practical ways that we can make a difference, that uh, we can do justice in this area towards those who are coming here seeking help? Uh, needing our help? Well, number one, individual um, people, let's say listeners, Mm -hmm. you need to get an education on this. You need to understand truly and get away from the talking heads on television and get a deep understanding of the true reality of what's going on, not only in the numbers coming over, but the reasons that they're coming, our, our culpability to it. You need to read. You need to do some reading and figure this out and really be able to have an educated um, a perspective about it beyond just um, Facebook. Um, right. One, There's three really off the top of my head great resources that you could sign up on their email list and you would just regularly get the updates um, coming. One is Grassroots International. Another is the Green Valley Samaritans, which are in southern Arizona. And then the third one would be the Interfaith Welcome Coalition of San Antonio. So again, the Grassroots International, the Green Valley Samaritans of uh, Arizona, or the Interfaith Welcome Coalition of San Antonio. You can find those if you just do a search in your engine there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you got on there, and then re- these are people who are on the ground working with the families, and so you'll get an education. Second, offer your blessing. Just simply say to the families, may things go well for you. Mm-hmm. And instead of looking at them with fear, look at them and say, oh my gosh, I wish that, I wish you well. And just simply God's blessing. And then get some personal experience. The single best way that you are going to understand their stories and understand their experiences is to volunteer one-on-one at some sort of refugee aid aid facility. And in my case, I live 45 miles north of San Antonio. San Antonio is about uh, two and a half to five hours from the border, depending on which long way you go. And the border has now moved to San Antonio because Immigration Customs Enforcement is dropping Im- immigrants off now in downtown San Antonio. So there are all kinds of options there, as there are in southern Arizona and southern California. And so get yourself to a, a place and where you can actually experience that. You're, you will be transformed. And then uh, get yourself involved in public witness and civic engagement. First, you need to have an education. You need to have an experience about it. You need to be at a minimum saying, may the uh, bless, offer your blessing, but then move to the point where you're willing to do public wis- uh, witness and civic engagement, which number one, call your elected officials again and again and again and say, this is wrong. I have a a friend of mine who hosted uh, a mother and her son seeking asylum in her home for a year. And her uh, asylum claim was ultimately denied. And she said that she sat in that courtroom and she described all of the different people interacting. And she said, I can't tell you that it's any one person who was at fault 
for why her asylum claim was denied. And when I left there, she said everybody wanted to be furious at the Trump administration, but she said there's too many problems contributing to this issue for too long. It's not just one person's problem. And we all need to become educated and informed on how it can be fixed. Leaving it alone is not an option. There needs to be transformative change, and we need to be holding ourselves, the United States of America, accountable to the same rule of law that we expect refugees to, specifically being we need to stop changing the laws and limiting access and doing what's called queue management and not allowing people to come through because, well, we're busy and we don't want them to come through. We need to be open and affirming and receptive. And if we are going to demand the refugees have accountability to quote rule of law, we need to hold ourselves accountable to that same rule of law. And we do that as uh, people who are registered to vote by holding our own elected officials accountable to justice and mm. not let uh, continue to get away with what is clearly immoral and wrong. And then uh, participate in public events that, that say, no, we do not want to continue going down this road. I mean, can you imagine what's going to be written about this mm. 20 years from now, 30 years from now? I mean, it's going to be incredibly appallingly just horrible to be reading what we are doing now. It's, it's horrible now. Mm -hmm. So we need to uh, say to our officials, ya in Spanish, enough, mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. um, I want to give two suggestions for financial support. Sure. So if people have the ability and the interest to do that, mm -hmm. um, the Immigration, um, the Interfaith Welcome Coalition of San Antonio, they have been offering hospitality to the families, to travelers at the bus station, at the Greyhound bus station in downtown San Antonio since 2014. And so they give um, a simple um, backpack filled with traveling supplies to help the families because, again, they're traveling with small children on a bus for two or three days to get to their family in, in New York or in uh, Washington State. Mm -hmm. And so they have given out 14,000 backpacks stuffed with all kinds of items in the first six months of this year alone. Um, that's, that's more than they, they, they gave away all last year. Mm -hmm. So a tangible way is to um, help support the Interfaith Welcome Coalition with those um, backpacks that go directly to the families. Um, and then the Catholic Charities has been providing funds for travel tickets, and they spend about $13,000 a week in travel tickets for people who can't afford them. So they Immigration's custom enforcement, they get through our gate. The uh, Homeland Security drops them off in downtown San Antonio. The city of San Antonio is giving them hospitality, and they're stuck there until they have a way to get to their family waiting for them, mm -hmm. who may or may not be able to afford a ticket. And so Catholic Charities is a phenomenal way to donate funds to help the families. It goes directly to the support of the families. So that's tangible things for people who have money. I want to be able to help in that um, direction. But I'll, I'll go back to the top. Stay informed. It's the single most important thing you could do. Know what's going on and do not take the bobblehead's word for it. Wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today uh, with me. And and just for um, those who may be interested in your books again, um, how can they find those? Are they available on Amazon, for example, or where would they be able to find your book if they wanted a copy of your books? Thank you. Yes, The Ethics of Hospitality came out in February, and it's with Lexington Books. It is available on Amazon. It's an academic book, so mm -hmm. it carries an, ac an academic price, I'll just say. 
The um, second book is due out. Um, it's called Desperately Seeking Asylum, um, Testimonies of Trauma, Courage, and Love. And that's with Rowan and Roman and Littlefield. And it's already on pre-order uh, with Amazon. And that one will be $36 in hardback. And I am expected to see the proofs on it next week to do the final page proofs on it. So it is moving along towards production and will be out, they say, uh, ready to, you know, in your hands by December 15th. That's exciting. Thanks again. Thank you.